0: Genesis chapter 49. We're going to read just the first two verses to really springboard us into the rest of the message. We'll ultimately read down to verse 27. But we want to just begin with the opening two verses to lead into our sermon today. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 1. And it says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word this morning. So we open the chapter 49 of Genesis. We gather around Jacob's deathbed and gathered there are his sons, 12 sons in all, and uh, the news has not been good. The doctors have not given any sense of hope as to regard, with regard to the future of Jacob. It's certain that he's going to die. And so you can imagine the scene. If you've been there and you've uh, had that uh, opportunity to stand around the uh, deathbed of a loved one, you know, you begin to speak in whispered tones one to another about what the future holds and how life is going to be without him. And so that's what you see here, Basically Basically the sons are gathered, they're wanting to hear from their father, they're looking for his blessing and uh, they're anticipating how life is going to be once Jacob has gone. And so at the very last Jacob manages to pull himself up and uh, moved by the Spirit of God, he's going to make a pronouncement. Now the old man, he beckons his sons to come in nearer. And he says, gather yourselves together. He says, come on in, gather round the bed. Gather yourselves in together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Now notice that little phrase, the last days. That's a prophetic term. When you see that term in scripture, it's usually saying something prophetical. And so here in 27 verses, what you have is a prophecy that covers the synopsis of the entire history of the nation of Israel. It's quite a remarkable prophecy. Uh, you know, it's interesting, we're in the very first book of the Bible, and it tells us the entire story of Israel from its foundation to its end. You come to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, tell you the entire history of the church, from the Ephesian church, which left its first love all the way through to the Laodicean church, which was careless and indifferent about the things of God. Well, it's, uh, here's, the, here's the beauty of the Bible, it's one unit. It's 66 books, but it's one unit, and the story is completed from beginning to end. So here we have a synopsis of the history of the nation of Israel. It's a prophetical message. But the message also has a personal aspect to it as well. And Jacob isn't just giving them something that's way out there in the future. He's going to speak to them about the here and now. And he's going to give a blessing, or as the case may be, not give a blessing to certain of his sons. And you know, there's many things you could say about Jacob. He perhaps wasn't the best father ever. He maybe didn't provide the greatest of home environments for his sons to grow up in. But I'll tell you this, he knew his sons. He knew about them. their are good points. They're bad points, and he's going to reward them accordingly in his dying words. Now, the first thing I want you to see about Jacob's dying words were this. It was a personal message. You know, first in line to hear from Jacob was his eldest son, Reuben. Now, whether Reuben is aware of it or not, he has been replaced by Joseph. The blessing and double portion has already been granted to Joseph and to his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so, though Reuben is the physically eldest, uh, and no doubt stands in line as such, hoping to receive that he's going to receive some good thing, that he's going to be blessed in some special way. And you can imagine him standing there. You know, there's something about big brothers. You know, I've got a big brother. I'm second in line. Uh, you might have a big brother. Sorry, Jonathan. There's something about big brothers. They have an air about them. You know, big the eldest in the family. You know, sometimes I like to make the point that I am the eldest. And you can see Reuben, you know, standing up here. Well, this is my rule. Dad's going to say something. He's going to say something to me first. And so, you know, at first it seems like his hopes are going to be realized. Look at what uh, Jacob says in verse 3. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. You can almost imagine Reuben's chest puffing up with each term, you know, as he, as he says to him, you are my firstborn, you are my might, you are my strength, you are the excellency of power. Yeah, Dad, that's me. What are you going to give me? Well, what he got was not exactly what he expected because Jacob knows Reuben, and he adds this, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou went up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou went, he went up to my couch. Imagine your father saying that to you on his deathbed. See you, you're unstable as water. See you, you're a double-minded man. See you, you can never make your mind up. You're never sure whether you're in or whether you're out. You know, here's Reuben, and that's exactly what he was. He was a double-minded man. He was unstable as water. Water always finds its own level, and Reuben always found his own level. He never raised above that. And so in that regard, we see that in the story of Genesis, and the story of Joseph's life. We see how that when his brothers were conspiring to kill Joseph, Reuben was wasn't man enough to defend the young boy, but he walked away and he and he left them to it. And he comes back to find him, you know, having been sold into slavery and all the rest of it, unstable as water. And notice too that Jacob condemns Reuben for an immoral act. Now we can't, we covered that act in chapter thirty-five and uh, verse twenty-two, where we read how that uh, Reuben went into uh, Jacob's uh, uh, concubine Bilhah and he lay with her, and uh, he uh, he was uh, the Failing his father's wife in that respect. And uh, Jacob remembered this act of betrayal. He remembered this immoral uh, behavior. And he had no word of encouragement for his eldest son. He, in fact, he exposes him to the other sons. He says, look, here's what he did. He, he, uh, he went into your father's bed and defiled his diet. He says, he went up to my couch. And he says, for that reason, he's cut from the will. There's no blessing for Reuben. What about Simeon and Levi? They're next in line. Well, you'll recall that Simeon and Levi were instrumental in the destruction of Shechem and the Shechemites. And we read that story in Genesis chapter 34. You remember how that the prince of Shechem set his eye upon Dinah, the sister of Simeon and Levi, and how that having discovered that she had been taken by him, that he had slept with her, they conspired together to trick the men of Shechem and to destroy the city, much to Jacob's displeasure. And so we find that Reuben, or sorry, Simeon and Levi are also to be chastised and condemned here. Look in verses 5 and 6. Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So in effect, these two men had exacted a very cruel revenge upon the men of Shechem, and their father now pays them back for that. He comes and he sees how they jeopardized his reputation, how they jeopardized the family welfare by doing that, how that they had to move on from that area ultimately. And so consequently, we're told that uh, Simeon is, uh, is going to be judged and, and uh, Levi is going to be judged. They're going to be divided and Jacob, scattered within uh, Israel. And that's exactly what happens. You watch the history of those two tribes and those two men and their descendants. Simeon becomes one of the lesser significant tribes. In fact, Simeon eventually gets assimilated into the tribe of Judah. And as far as Levi goes, Levi becomes the priestly tribe. The priestly tribe has no possession in the land, uh, but instead is scattered around the land of Israel. Judah's name, whose next means praise. Look at verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rise him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the fine, and his ass's colt unto the choice fine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes, his eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth White with milk. That's quite a dramatic uh, prophecy, I think you'll agree. Uh, But he's the first of the brothers to find praise on the lips of his father, Jacob. Now, Judah, you'll remember, uh, initiated the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. But uh, then, having lost two of his own sons, and we covered all of this in the story, he lost two of his own sons. He was watching his father's grief. When he experienced his own personal grief, Judah became a changed man. And ultimately, when Joseph becomes the governor of Egypt, it is Judah who goes and he appeals on behalf of the younger uh, Benjamin. Uh, he, 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 he puts his own life on the line. He's willing to sacrifice himself. And all of this is taken into account as, Judah, as Jacob makes his declaration. Judah's tribe was to bear the Messiah. Uh, he would be the royal tribe. And so every king from King David onward belonged to the tribe of Judah. Notice in verse 9 the reference to the lion. And notice in verse 10 the reference to the scepter. These are regal images. And notice the messianic prophecy that comes in uh, verse 10. He shall reign until Shiloh comes until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh means the one who brings peace. He says, you shall reign only until the Shiloh comes. Judah shall have one king after another until the prince of peace comes. It's a reference to Christ, to his kingdom, and his kingdom is everlasting. And at his kingdom, all other kingdoms are concluded. As far as Sebulun and Isaac is concerned. not much is known about them. Let's read just for the sake of context, verses 13 and 14. Sebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, He shall be forever, or, he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be on Sidon. Isaac is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. As I say, not much is known about these tribes, really. Uh Sebulun, very little is said about him in Scripture. Uh, Isaac really becomes identified with underachievement. And so both, uh, both tribes are, are rather minor tribes. And then you come to this figure, the figure of Dan in verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Now, Dan here is marked out as a judge of the people. And one of the greatest judges that ever came out of the the tribe of Dan was none other than the judge Samson. But Dan had a a downside. And here was his downside. It says he shall be a serpent by the way. And the serpent in Scripture is always indicative of Satan. Satan. It's always a pictorial of Satan. And so sadly, Danite history is one of sin and of idolatry in particular. And I want you to notice that having raised this specter of sin and idolatry in Israel and having identified the work of the serpent in the midst, notice what Jacob says in verse 18. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Now this is really a critical verse because the word salvation Is the Hebrew word Yeshua? That's the name of Jesus. Right there in the first book of our Bible, Jesus is named. Here is Jacob on his deathbed, and this is his profession. He says, all my life I have been waiting for Jesus. I have been waiting for the Messiah uh, to come. This is a a remarkable thing when you consider where it's placed in Scripture. He's waiting for the Lord to deal with the issues of sin. He's waiting for the Lord to deal with the idolatry of Don and of the human heart. He's waiting for the Lord to deal with Satan as the enemy of our souls. Then in verse 19, God is told a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at last. The tribe of Dan dwelt separately from the other tribes of Israel. Uh, they they, they uh, lived on the east side of Jordan. And consequently, they were exposed to the enemies of Israel first beyond uh, the other, uh, other tribes. And so in that respect, being more susceptible to attack, uh, history records that they were often engaged in conflict but that they were very often victorious in conflict. They were very able fighters. Asher, verse 20, is a baker. Out of Asher his bread shall be fat. He shall yield royal dainties. This is the tribe that, again, that doesn't have a great deal of significance in the history of Israel, but it is a tribe that is known for its bakery. It was known for its produce of oil. And then you get to the next tribe, Naphtali. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. And uh, when Canaan was settled, the Nathalites settled in the mountains northwest of Galilee. And they are therefore described like a hang that was enjoying the freedom of the mountains that was you know bouncing around from place to place along the countryside surrounding northern Israel. And then you come ultimately to, uh, or penultimately to Joseph. And it says this concerning uh, Joseph. Let's, let's carry on down there and see verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough Even a fruitful bough by a whale, whose branches went over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him, and shattered him, and hated him. But his his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, And by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. How do you think Reuben felt when he heard those words? (laughs) You know, he's standing there getting all puffed up. And then Lord says, or Jacob says, Unstable as water, thou shalt not exhale." And he comes now to Joseph and he has this glowing blessing resting upon Joseph. And one word sums up Joseph, and that's the word fruitful. Despite all the obstacles of his life, despite all the opposition, the persecution, despite everything that his brothers threw at him. He came out in the end triumphant in the Lord, and he is subject to blessing upon blessing upon blessing. That's the truth of a fruitful life. Finally, there's Benjamin, verse twenty-seven. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. He's described as a ravenous wolf, one who dis to devise the spoils of war. And the tribe of Benjamin also would become mighty warriors. The very interesting thing about uh, the Benjamites is that they trained to battle with their left hand. Uh, you know, they were, what to use a big word, they became ambidextrous they weren't necessarily born that way but they uh, came to a place where they could use right hand and left hand which was critical in battle because most armies as you can imagine would fight with their right hand would be have their swords in the right hand and would be used to fighting a right-handed soldier but benjamin would come at them with the left hand and this would unsettle the enemy and consequently the tribe of benjamin became mighty warriors they were tough they were fearless individuals So it was a personal message. Now, time prohibits us this morning, but uh, Lord willing, someday I'll come back to this, this one chapter, and we'll go through this in greater detail because it's remarkable when you begin to trace Jacob's prophecy through the various tribal groupings that are mentioned there, uh, it is most remarkable how accurately these prophecies were fulfilled. It was a personal message. It was a prophetic message. Now, here you have the entire history of Israel in a nutshell. And basically what you have here is a timeline. Uh, beginning with the Old Testament, the dispensation of law, leading up to the cross, into the church age with the dispersal of the Jewish people, and then that's followed by the rapture of the church, which we're expecting at any moment, and then after the rapture on earth comes the tribulation. After seven years of tribulation, the Lord returns to earth in his second coming, and his kingdom is established. Now watch what happens as 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 you take what we already know, about these tribes and about Jacob's words to them, and see how well it fits with what we know about the story of the nation of Israel. Now, Reuben and uh, Simeon and Levi, lay slot in there, right in the Old Testament section. And uh, the history of the nation showed a people who were, like Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, unstable at times. You know, you look into the, into the history of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a history of failure. It's a history of sin. It's a history of, 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 uh, of, of sometimes great heights. But also great lows. And you just look at it and you think, what is wrong with these people? They've been given such a blessing. God has revealed himself to them specifically. Surely they ought to be doing better than this. But their history is one of failure. They engaged in war with surrounding nations, and yet, as seen in the characteristics of the Levites, they were meticulous in the handling of the law. So that's basically that part of Israelite history. Then you come to the next tribe, that's the tribe of Judah. Uh, Judah fits in uh, right at the cross. He pictures Christ's first advent, he also pictures Christ's second advent. He comes as Shiloh, he comes as the prince of peace, he comes to make peace between God and man, and man and God, and he holds out the possibility of reconciliation by the cross. And uh, he's willing to establish his kingdom if people would uh, but receive him. And yet what happens? At the end of it all, he's put to a cross. And we read that in verse 11. Binding his foal unto the fine and his ass's colt unto the choice fine. Remember what the Lord Jesus did? How that he sent his disciples off to get the colt of an ass and he was going to make that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he rode upon that donkey uh, into Jerusalem and in, in, uh, what we call a uh, palm. Sunday. And uh, yet what happens? At the, at the end, he ties up his donkey and he ends up giving himself to the cross. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. But that's not the last you've heard of Jesus, because verse 12 tells about his second coming, when his eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. But that's, we'll leave that for the moment. But understand that Judah portrays the cross. He pictures Christ coming into the world as the prince of of peace. What happens after the cross? Well, what happens after the cross is very simple. The uh, nation of Israel is judged, uh, and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, and the emperor Hadrian comes along, and he disperses the Jews uh, around the world among the the Roman uh, nations. And in that respect, they are portrayed, best of all, uh, by Zebulun and Issachar, who we said were tribes that were little known of. And that's really what happened to the Jews. They lost their land. They were put out into the four corners of the earth. They were assimilated with other nations. They were they were here. But, you know, you think about even here in, in, in Northern Ireland, there was, there's been Jews in our land. Now, some of them have done great things. But generally speaking they're nowhere nobody thinks about them generally speaking nobody considers them they're just there they're just this quiet presence in the land and so they are throughout the rest of the world so they depict the post resurrection Jews dispersed during the church age throughout the nations then we come to the next tribe who's the next tribe the tribe of Dan what do you find with the tribe of Dan well well you find that Dan comes right after the rapture. He presents us with the figure of the Antichrist. He's a serpent by the way. Uh, he's a man drawn out of the ranks of Israel, and he's a man who's an instrument of Satan. Now, again, there's a, this is an amazing prophecy in Scripture, and I'm convinced. Uh, other pastors might disagree with me, but they have the right to be wrong. Uh, I'm convinced. That the Antichrist will come from the Jewish people, and that he will be of the tribe of Dan when he appears. Now, I could be wrong about that, uh, but I think when we get to heaven, we'll find out I was right. So, anyway, um, but you know, that's that's the that's it. Just fits the bill. It just fits right in here. It slots right in the jigsaw puzzle uh, of time and of the nation of Israel. And uh, notice that uh, after Antichrist is the hope of the second advent that's expressed because no sooner has Jacob described him as a serpent by the way an adder in the path, he says what? I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. He says, the Antichrist may come, but we as a people, the Jewish people, are waiting for our Messiah. We're waiting for Jesus. We're waiting for our salvation. So Antichrist is coming, but I will wait on the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, that's great advice for us today because sometimes there are Christians who are so caught up in end-time doctrine that they think that they've got to research who the Antichrist is and and try to identify the Antichrist and figure out when the Antichrist is coming. And so, uh, friends, we're not waiting for the Antichrist, we're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. I will wait for thy salvation, O Lord. Then you come to the next grouping, and that is uh, God and Asher and Naphtali, and they picture the moral character of the tribulation saints being overcome, yet finally being overcomers. They scrape a living by their own ingenuity, and they flee like hinds upon the mountainside. The whole time of the tribulation, they're fleeing. They're on the run. They're, they're fearing for their lives. And uh, all the way, they're giving what the Bible describes here, what Jacob calls goodly uh, words. Notice verse 21. Naphtali is a hind let loose, he giveth goodly words. In other words, right throughout the tribulation, these Jewish believers are witnessing and they're speaking of the, of the coming kingdom of Christ. And then the Lord Jesus comes and he sets his feet upon the earth in the second coming. And then we enter into the kingdom age. Sorry, I've lost a slide there. Let me just redo this for you. You come into the kingdom age and you have Joseph and Benjamin. Finally, the nation becomes fruitful. And so they picture the triumph of the nation after the second coming of Christ. It's quite remarkable when you see how it fits in with what we understand from the New Testament concerning uh, the ages and concerning the uh, dispensations that are set before us. So it's a personal message that comes in Genesis 49. It's a practical or prophetical message that comes in Genesis 49, but it's also a practical message. Because in many ways, the 12 tribes of Israel mirror what you find in churches. You know, churches are made up of different kinds of people. Have you ever noticed that? If you've been around churches any length of time, you'll notice that there are all kinds of people. There are Thomas-type characters who are always negative, and, you know, Eeyores. You've got doubting people. You've got people who are like Peter, you know, open mouth, insert foot. You know, that's those kind of people. Uh, You've got people like John who are very loving and affectionate, and, and so on. So you've got all these different kinds of people. And just as in this family there were different kinds of sons in many ways they reflect upon us as different kinds of christian Reuben reminds me of the unstable Christian. You know, there are Christians like Reuben. They can never seem to make up their mind. You know, they're unstable as water. They'll never excel. They're, they're double-minded. They possess what might be described as a, as a half-hearted righteousness. David said, I prayed that the Lord would uh, unite his heart, that he, would, uh, that he would unite his heart. In other words, he says, my heart is divided. My heart is sometimes half-hearted, but I need to, need to be wholehearted if I'm going to serve the Lord. And you know, there's some of you today, and you're Probably a little bit like Reuben, spiritually unstable as water, Uh, double-minded. You know, I I gave an announcement a few moments ago, and I said, you know, if you'd like to be baptized, why don't you speak to myself, one of the other elders? We're going to have a baptismal service two weeks time. And here's what Reuben's thinking: maybe I should, maybe I should, maybe I will, and maybe I won't. Will he ever get baptized? Probably not. Won't make his mind up. Won't make a decision about it. Won't do the right thing. Don't be a Reuben. Don't be like Reuben. There's Simeon and Levi. They represent self willed Christians. You know, it says in their anger in verse 6 they slew a man, and in their self will, they digged down a wall. I wonder how much trouble is caused in churches by people with an angry spirit. Some people come into churches having an angry spirit. There's people who come into the churches and they're self willed believers. Uh, There's people who will come in and they, uh, they will neither bow to the will of God nor to the welfare of their brothers and sisters in Christ, who always want to have everything their own way. It's my way or the highway. And if it's not done their way, they're not happy. They're never content. I wonder, is that you? Are you a Simeon? Are you a Levi? Do you always want things done your way? Or do you always grumble about how things are done in church? Do you go home and complain, this wasn't right and that wasn't right? And did you see that? And do you see what a, what a mistake was made in that second hymn? And that pastor, You know what's he thinking of saying this or that? And you go home and you grumble and you complain and you have the preacher and the pianist and the elder and the deacon for dinner. Well, I hope it gives you indigestion. Is that you is that what you're like simeon levi self-willed trying to impose your will upon the church you know i was thinking about this just yesterday i think it was or friday i was thinking about pastoring and what a strange vocation it is uh, because pastoring is one of those few vocations where everybody thinks they can do better than you and, uh, you know, I know sometimes where you look and say, well, he's got a very easy job. He just stands up for an hour on a Sunday morning and says a few words and goes home and plays golf the rest of the week. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. Uh, you know, if you think you can do it better, do it. Go for it. Knock yourself out. <laughs> you know, there's, there's very, you never, you know, never hear somebody saying to a consultant, listen, you just put that scalpel aside. I'll take this over from here. I can do a better." You, you never hear them say that. You never hear him say an architect or a lawyer or somebody else who has. But for some reason, everybody thinks they can do better than the preacher. The weird thing is that the Lord didn't call you. He called the preacher. Sometimes we'd be better praying instead of grumbling. Sometimes we'd be better encouraging instead of complaining. But sometimes we'd be better listening to others. Instead of always wanting to be heard ourselves. We need to come to the cross and die to self. That's Simeon and Levi. Now on the positive side you have Judah. Judah is an illustration of someone who is a praising and courageous Christian. You're going to like Judah's in the congregation. Judah means praise. He'll always, uh, he'll always be a powerful Christian because a praising Christian is a powerful Christian. Uh, you know, there are some of us and we spend every day grumbling about our problems, niggling over the negatives of life. But listen, there are others who look at the positives of life. There are others who find cause to praise each day, no matter what happens. You know, there's the old glass half empty and the glass half full analogy. And some of us are glass half empty people and some of us are glass half full people. Judas are half full people. Judas always see the positive. Judas always see the good. Uh, You know, if that's one thing I've learned in my Christian life, it is to look for the good in every situation, to look at what the Lord is doing. You know, to see what, uh, what God is going to make, even out of sometimes the worst of circumstances. You know, when I, when I uh, pastored in England, I had a, an associate pastor, and he picked up a little phrase of mine. And, and I never realized I said it till I worked alongside him. And he said that I always said, but on the bright side. That no matter what happened, I'd always say, but on the bright side. <laughs> and, and I guess that's how I am. I always think about the bright side. I always look for the positive in every situation. I always see how God is going to work this thing out uh, for good. And I want to encourage you to do that because I think in that there lies a secret to spiritual power. To be a praising Christian. Not to be negative all the time. Not to be down in the dumps all the time. Not to be criticizing and complaining and moaning and groaning. You're like an Israelite when you do that. No, be a praising Christian. Be an encouraging Christian. You know, in Zebulun, we see those in church who are comforters. Zebulun shall be for a haven. And uh, thank God for those among us who are comforters, who console others. A shoulder to cry on, and and, an ear that will listen. You know, that's not everybody's gift. But some people have that gift. Some people will let you sit there and and cry on on their shoulders all day long, and they'll listen. And that's a wonderful gift. They'll be a haven uh, to you. Isaacer is a Christian who's an underachiever. Notice it says in verse 14, Isaacer is likened to a strong ass couching down between two burdens. He possesses power, but he's going nowhere. And that reminds me of many believers who never seem to be uh, and to know what they should be doing. But they know what they should be doing, but they never put themselves to it. That's the Isaacer spirit. Always underachieving, Don. You say, Pastor, how can Don possibly be in the fellowship? You know, how could you... Don is a picture of the Antichrist? Don is the idolatrous tribe. Is there a Don among us? Well, listen, Don is a picture of the cunning believer. You know, a serpent is a creature of subtlety and of cunning, and it seems almost a shame to put the word cunning alongside the word Christian. But sadly, that describes some people who profess to be uh, Christians. Cunning Christians are those who try to manipulate others. They, they try to turn and twist other people uh, to their own end. They're the kind of Christian uh, who, if you deal with them, will give you a raw deal. They're the kind of Christian who would happily uh, sell, uh, buy and sell their brethren. You know, I have to tell you that some of the worst business deals I've ever done in my life were done. I'm sorry to say, with professing Christians. And here's the thing. Very often I only did those deals because the person said they were a Christian. You know, I remember going to buy a car. I wasn't that keen on it. The fellow told me he was an elder in a Baptist church and gave me a glowing report of his own great eldership. So it be the worst car I ever had in my life. Two weeks later it was blown. The car was wrecked. And then I spoke to people about it and said, what do you go to him for? Sure, nobody trusts him. But he was an elder. He was an elder, mark you, in a Baptist church right here in Northern Ireland and very proud of him. But he sold me a lemon. And I'm sure if he knew anything about cars, which he most certainly must have done, he knew he was selling me a lemon. He was done." There's always a Dan in every fellowship. Shameful characters, men and women of low degree. One wonders sometimes if they're even saved at all. And then there's the overcoming Christian, who's found in the personal and tribe of God. God is seen as overcome, yet overcoming. He has his battles, but he always comes out fighting and victorious. I wonder, are you an overcoming Christian? There are great people to be around too. People who deal with difficulties, but they get beyond the difficulty. Uh, People who deal with problems, but they get beyond the problems, and they get the victory over the problem. Asher depicts the blissful Christian. Asher is the baker of the tribe. He's satisfied with good things. He typifies the Christian who's discovered the unsearchable riches of Christ and is glad in them. And then you've got Naphtali. Naphtali reminds me of the joyful Christian. Every Christian, every church needs a Naphtali in it. You know, well, he's he's a hanged, let loose. You you, you know, uh, I I saw a video some time back and uh, it was about cows being let out in springtime. You know, they're in the... In the barns during the summer, they're in the sheds during or during the winter rather. And come springtime, the farmer opens the the gates of the shed and he lets them out into the field. And those it's a very joyous moment when I watched this video. I didn't realize cows were such a joyful thing, but the, the cows were all jumping out and they were all happy as could be to be out in the fields again. Well, that's a, that's somewhat what it's like in this description of a hind being let loose. If you can imagine this creature, which is used to bouncing over the fields being tied up for a while or being somehow locked away for a period and then you let it out. It's going to bounce all the way across the field. And there are some Christians like that. You know, there are Christians, and honestly, if you're you're one of those negative Christians, this person is your nemesis. Okay? This person's going to drive you crazy because they're happy all the time. And what's worse than a Christian who's happy all the time? I mean, God did not save us to be happy all the time. Every, every Baptist knows that, that we're at our best when we're most miserable. But this is a Christian who's happy in the Lord. This is the Christian who comes bounding in and is excited. This is a person who's looking forward to the mission, not the one who's going, oh, no, they're flipping seven nights out of the house. I can't believe a pastor's doing this. Yes. No, here's the, here's the Naftali Christian. I can't wait for the mission to start, Pastor. I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to it. Tell me about the priest. That's a Naftali Christian. They're agreeing. They're wonderful to be around. They're encouraging. They're bright. They're joyful people. They're people who rejoice in the Lord. They're people who rejoice in the liberty whereby Christ has set us free. And then there's the fruitful Christian. The fruitful Christian is pictured by Joseph. Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Joseph's life bore fruit. He brought benefit to others. He brought salvation to Israel. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. But nevertheless, he was undeterred, and the plan of God in his life laid out before him was fulfilled. He's not put off by criticisms. He's not discouraged, notice, even though others shoot arrows at him. Still, he keeps going. That's Joseph Christian. Christian, when all is said and done, will your life have borne fruit for the Lord? There was a lovely, lovely woman, Greg will know her, and Diane will know her, Caroline Borden. Caroline Borden is a woman that you'll probably never meet in your entire life. But she is a fruitful Christian in my view. She's a little woman, she's probably up to my shoulder height, quite a short woman, uh, a very quietly spoken woman, a very humble and unassuming woman. Uh, But my goodness, what a witness that woman is for the Lord Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen her at work. You know, she would, we would knock doors in Dublin. And uh, she, would, she would always ask the people when they came out the door, you'd witness to them. She'd be the silent partner. I'd be doing the witnessing. And she'd always say, end the witness. She'd say, do you want a Bible? And they'd say, well, no. And she'd say, have you ever read the Bible? They'd say, well, no. And she'd say, well, do you think you need a Bible? Well, maybe. Well, would you like a Bible? No, I don't really want one. Well, I'll bring one tomorrow morning. Uh, no, but I don't really want one. Okay, well, do you want the Bible? And she would just stick at it. And she would never give up. She'd just keep going and going. Eventually, they'd go, yes, okay, bring me a Bible. And she'd say, I'll bring that person a Bible tomorrow morning. And she'd bring them a Bible. I remember her being on a, being on a, on a lift with her in a hospital. We are going up to the top floor in a hospital in Dublin. It was me, her, there was a nun, and there was another lady. The lift was going to the top floor and uh, as, they, as it was going up, the lady looked a little bit disconcerted and she looked at every one of us. She says, I don't like lifts, they scare me. The nun said, oh dear, don't be worrying about that. Think about it this way. As we go up, the, closer we, the, the further we go up, the closer we get to heaven. I didn't think anything of it. I thought a two second lift, you know, I'll be out of here in off awful way. Caroline, no you won't. You have to be born again to go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was brilliant brilliant i saw her talking to some kid in the, in, in the street and the mother one sunday morning was coming training in the church turning into the car park at church she was starting talking to a woman in the street this little girl and i spoke to her i says did you know those people she says I've never met them before pastor i said oh i thought you were when you were talking to them you must know them she says no she says i was just walking past them and the mother says to the wee girl look at the beautiful rainbow and she says i just stopped and says do you know where the rainbow came from and no one says no. And she says, I began to tell her the story of Noah and told her how she could get saved. You see, that's, that's a fruitful person. That's a Joseph person. That's a person who's on the job. That's a person who's watching out for souls. That's a soul winner. And every church needs Josephs. Every church needs someone who's looking out for someone else and seeking to win someone else to the Lord. And finally, you have a Benjamin. Benjamin depicts the warring Christian. And such was the ferocity of this tribe that on one occasion, get this, they decided to take on the entire uh, nation of Israel, all the other tribes, single-handed. They threatened to fight all the other tribes single-handed. And I'm sorry to say that's how some Christians are also. Constantly warring, constantly fighting, constantly battling with others, rarely gracious, unforgiving in spirit, unrelenting, picking fights, finding faults with others. You know what? Benjamin Christians make the place miserable as much as Judah and Joseph make it a delightful place to be. I wonder how you considered this morning, you know, which kind of Christian are you? Having made these declarations, we read at the end that Jacob gathered up his feet into his bed and yielded up the ghost in verse 33 and was gathered unto his people. His day was done. This is the end of Jacob's story. And I wonder when your day is done and my day is done, will our lives have counted for something? Your life have counted for something. You know, which tribe best represents your character? Which tribe best represents your contribution? You know, someday we're not going to be gathered around Jacob's deathbed, but we will be gathered around the Lord Jesus' judgment seat. And with every bit as much candor and frankness, the Lord Jesus will summarize the value of our lives, the worth of our lives. You see, he's not going to lie about us. He's not going to shy away from telling the truth about us. He's going to lay it out exactly as it was he will rebuke the cunning dance, he will deal with the self-satisfied Isaacers, he will challenge the self-willed Simeons but he'll reward the Judas and the Naphtali's and the Joseph's among us. At Jacob's bedside there was both commendation and condemnation and at Jesus' bedside or at Jesus' throne, sorry, there will be reward and there will be loss. Reward. I wonder this morning, can we not be motivated in our hearts to say this, you know, when the last word is said, when I'm on my deathbed and the last word is said by me and I pass into eternity to gather at the Savior's feet to see him on his judgment throne, will I hear from him the words, well done and receive his reward? Or will I go there like Reuben, expecting something, but getting nothing in return? May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.